So I think there's probably three or four challenges that are key to EV uptake. I think the first is power, management of power networks. Uh, an EV, when it's charging at full whack just at home, draws seven kilowatt of power. Just putting that into context, so that's effectively two ovens and a kettle working full whack going on for nine hours, and that's literally just one house. Welcome to Bite Size, a series where we highlight innovation across transport, mobility and smart cities and meet the people that are making it happen. My name is Emily Bobbis. I'm a road intelligence startup founder and my goal is to combat the stigma that transport is uncool, uninteresting and uninspired. Uh, well, David, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to chat today. Oh, no, thank you. No, really looking forward to it. Um, I'm always listening to podcasts, but I never get a chance to be part of one. So uh, there you go. There's a first for me anyway. <laughs> Lovely. I'm glad that we can uh, help facilitate that. <laughs> I was hoping to start off by um, getting you to tell us a little bit more about your story. So what, what's your background and what are some things that you're passionate about? Yeah, so um, yeah, so I live in in the north of England. Uh, I don't know how international this this is, so I pretty much lost my, most of my northern accent. Um, I can put it on if I need to, but yeah, I live I live in a city called York, so quite a historic city. Um, so for me, I've really um, been into uh, this sort of space, you know, transport decal for quite a long time. So studied randomly i'm not an engineer by trade i studied history at, at the university of edinburgh and then um went into transport um at a fairly youngish age sort of as i graduated out of uni and then off the back of that um found that the big space that was growing and the space that was having a major impact in terms of transport planning was around this whole decab space um and funnily enough that, that my degree that i did uh, was actually transport and economics in history so a lot of the work that i actually ended up doing at a degree level although it seems really not linked on the on the face of it actually started to play quite an important part because ultimately i was very much looking at data and how data um links back to to sort of economic growth and ultimately we're in this space now where EVs and the adoption of EVs and, and this this push towards decarb and decarbonisation is very much driven or will be driving economic growth going forward. So, funnily enough, on the face of it, people go, "Well, he's not an engineer. How can he? How can he have any any view on this?" And I'm like, "Well, <laughs> yeah, you guys sort out the electrics of plugging in the charges and stuff. Let me do the strategic stuff, and that's really important. I'm not saying it's not important, um, but you guys do that stuff, and I'll, I'll look at the strategic. Okay, how does how do you put charges here? How do you maximise adoption? How do you encourage people to to move away from cars where possible? You know, um, obviously, I know you you're based out in Sydney, and there's a really good program over there to you know get people onto mass transit and what have you via the trams and the, and the various train networks and stuff but in, you know in 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 in, uh, in urban areas where the car is needed it's all about making sure we've got the charges in the right place so my passion is very much about that so you are currently also part of a company called wsp uh did you want to give like maybe a brief little background about what they are and like the problems that that's aiming to solve yeah definitely so uh, wsp is uh, a global consultancy um Again, uh, they're, they're pretty much everywhere. I'm sure they, they have offices in Sydney uh, and Australia, um, offices in Europe, the US and the like. Um, and the company's very much focused on 
um, providing professional consultancy and engineering services, and things like strategic advisory, design services, in a, in a range of areas. So that can range from things like transportation, which is obviously my space, infrastructure, environment, building, power, energy, water, and, and resource. Ultimately, as we're starting to see this, this move towards greater sort of uh, environmental resilience, you're starting to see all of these consultancy services that might have been separate in the past packaged together. And ultimately, that's meaning that as a consultancy, we're able to offer like a full end to end. Yeah, quite an exciting consultancy to work for. Love it. So, so uh, you mentioned, to steal your word, decarb. I've never actually mm. heard anyone shorten it like that, and I kind of like it because Australians like to shorten most things, so yeah. it, it works out quite well. Um, so decarbonisation or decarb and net zero are two, like, super hot topics in, in transport, as you've alluded to, and mm. uh, as you've also alluded to, a lot of governments have kind of included electric vehicles as part of their plans and strategies to tackle um, targets around like reducing emissions and, and sustainability. Uh, are you able to maybe set the scene a little bit about, say, electric vehicle uptake in the UK through maybe some of the, the key stats that are floating around or even some of the policies and the targets that are kind of being driven forward at the moment? I'll, I'll talk about two key geographies really so europe so the eu 27 minus us let's not go into that one um, <laughs> i won't i won't i won't share my political colors on that but anyway and then the uk so there's two separate stats and i, I like to keep those two together because ultimately um even if we are in a separate governance setup or what have you the trajectory for, for europe and the uk are fairly similar and you'll see in the stats so um I've taken 2022 figures because I think 20, well, obviously 2023 is happening. Um, 2022 is is obviously a full year of data. So um, in the 27, in 2022, uh, battery electric vehicles accounted for about 13% of all registrations. So that's about 1.3 million vehicles. So that's new registrations. Um, and there's everything from like a, a private buyer going to a, a car dealership and buying an EV all the way through to uh, leasing and company car usage. And in the UK, as I say, the figure's not too dissimilar. So again, 2022, battery electric vehicles, 12.5% uh, of our registrations, and that's about 14,000. So obviously a smaller market, but the same percentage. I've deliberately excluded hybrids here, just because that massively complicates the, the sort of adoption of lower carbon uh, transport mode. So really um that's the adoption rate and what's driving that well the uk uh, has set a target of not selling any petrol or diesel cars by 2030 and the european union has set that to 2035 now there's rumors in the uk that that might be shifting to 2035 but the adoption rates are maybe not where they need to be and there's so many factors to, 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 to talk about and you could do a separate podcast on that on its own so I won't go into that um, but ultimately that's pretty much where we are in that space so there's a, there is a growth you know we're talking about 10, 10 to 15% worth of cars registered and the other thing that's happening is you're starting to see more of the cars that were bought in like are, are leased in from 2017 onwards that are actually fairly robust 
good quality cars that are actually starting to come into the used market as well. So the used market's picking up as well. So every there's now a segment for everyone, not just new cars in terms of EV usage. Super interesting. I'm very interested in this as well because Australia is uh, lagging quite behind in our EVs because we don't have any fuel emission standards or any national policy strategy actually either so it's it's kind of interesting to see what's happening in europe and the uk who are a a lot further ahead i would say in in the policies but also the actual uh implementation stage as well exactly and i think the challenge is you know we have to look at the geographies as well that we're talking about and the challenge here is it's very easy for everyone in europe or the uk to be like oh we're so far advanced you know when you look at the us or or australia or, or new zealand for that matter but at the same time, you know, some of the, the journeys that are done in Australia, the distance is obviously a, it's so much of a bigger country. And, uh, you know, you need you need vehicles with longer ranges. You know, range anxiety will be an issue more because the distances that people will want to use their car for are just so much longer. But it's also about what we call particulates that are also generated from brake wear and tear. Um, and whatever happens in those instances, even if you have an EV, that's still an emission factor that you can't really get away from. But the legislation still needs to target that. I think a lot of people treat EVs as some kind of silver bullet to solve all problems associated with ICE or internal combustion engine vehicles. So it's kind of nice to to balance it out a little bit and, and know that we're not saying that these are a... Uh, uh, be all end all kind of situation. I think you also talked about the idea of like how these shifts will affect different groups of people in different ways, uh, which leads mm. very nicely to the next question about uh, what challenges do uh, or does electric vehicle uptake present and to whom? So I think there's probably three or four challenges that are key to EV uptake. I think the first is power management of power networks uh, an ev when it's charging at full whack just at home draws seven kilowatt of power just putting that into context so that's effectively two ovens and a kettle working full whack going on for nine hours and that's literally just one house and that's the equivalent in you know of three houses effectively if you think about it or two houses so you've instantly sort of doubled or in some cases tripled your power draw. And that is on top of the energy network, which is trying to move away from power sources that are not sustainable themselves, because ultimately, you know, the danger is you can quite easily greenwash your credentials by saying, oh, I'm obviously charging my car at home. But if your power is being drawn from coal power plants, or gas power plants, then ultimately you are not actually being that green, are you? You're just shifting with decarbonisation burden to somebody else. So what that effectively means is that the power network has two challenges. One is smoothing the curve, so trying to encourage people to charge at different times, making sure they're not charging at peak times, which again, is fairly standard in most countries, you know, the working pattern's fairly standard. So the power network needs to adapt in terms of managing the load and also becoming more sustainable in terms of wind power. But at the same time, the wind doesn't always blow uh, in the same way that the sun doesn't always shine. So you need to be able to find a way of basically um, managing that power. So that's one area. And I think the other one is this sort of equitability of EV adoption. You'll see most of the EVs 
on the market are pretty much at the upper end of the sort of purchasing scales, um, quite expensive. Um, and ultimately, they are sort of pricing out a lot of people in terms of the EV space. And the challenge there is, you can if, we, if we're not careful, you're going to have a, a sort of a, two, a twin track route of people who can afford EVs, adopting EVs, and doing so uh, because they can afford it. And then those who probably really need to switch to EVs because they probably have the older vehicles that are more polluting. And this is a terrible generalisation here, but uh, those from lower to middle income backgrounds will struggle to decarb because their most EVs are quite expensive as a whole. And the challenge is you then start saying, well, OK, well, no, there are affordable EVs in the market. And I'm like, OK, there are, but... The rule of thumb with an EV is if it's cheaper, it usually has a smaller battery, which then reduces the range, which then you start getting to this whole sticky space of effectively saying to people, well, you can afford a smaller EV, but you're going to have to spend more time driving to charge it. And also, when you're charging it, you can be waiting longer because chances are that EV doesn't have rapid charging technology in it. The adoption piece needs to be more equitable as well. So does that mean more support or or better support for, for charging infrastructure in local areas which are not as affluent as those other areas where there's a high level of EV adoption? Yes. That, for me, the power and the equitability piece is, is, is really the critical bit that we need to crack. Yeah, it's super interesting as well because um, I hadn't considered the equitability of adoption argument, which is super interesting. Um, and it does, again, lead quite nicely to the next question, which is like one of the, uh, I guess the beefiest challenges that we hear about with EVs, or at least uh, as we're encouraging the adoption of more electric vehicles is the infrastructure to support that uptake. So you've mentioned mm-hmm. this idea of two ovens and a kettle, and then there's all those arguments about like, uh, where, do you, where do you even place uh, infrastructure, how much needs to be public versus private and all that kind of conversation. Um, and this kind of ties back in, you recently did a presentation about EV charging utilization modeling. Uh, Before we dive into it, I just wanted to get like a clear kind of uh, overview of what is utilization modeling. So we can kind of start from the basics and build from there. Utilization modeling is all about understanding the likely usage pattern of a charge point. It seems really like common sense, Actually, maybe it isn't. We don't. I don't know if we think like this. So, like you know, if you buy an oven or you buy a, a TV, you don't necessarily think of the usage patterns and, and the deterioration of that, but also the power drain. But when you're investing all of this money in terms of infrastructure, and in the UK, you know, a charge point can cost anything between the, the charger, the, the bay it's sitting in, the power connection. All of those things can cost anything up to eight eight thousand pounds to fifteen thousand pounds, roughly. To understand how you're going to get your return on investment, you need to understand how often it's going to be used and that usage pattern, how that translates into an income. So what utilisation model effectively, modelling effectively does is says, okay, well, you've got a charge point here or you've got a proposed charge point here, realistically based on the local demand, i.e. the local number of people who are probably going to be using it, what's the usage pattern over the day? Uh, and what, how does that translate into power drawn? And then ultimately, once that translates into power drawn, 
how does that then translate into income? Because ultimately, every kilowatt drawn is, you know, 55p potentially uh, that's charged to the customer and potentially 30p of that is needed to, you know, service the debt of building the charge point or cover the power cost, all of those things. So it's about balancing all of those things in a model so that when we're deploying something or proposing a deployed location, we can say with a degree of confidence or a degree of understanding that that location will likely see good uptake because ultimately if you don't do that then you end up building charge points in places that just actually don't get used. So how have we decided where EV charging infrastructure has been placed up until this point or is that kind of also part of the challenge? Uh, a, a great question. So I think to date primarily most of the deployments have tended to be driven by a bit of a build it and they will come mentality. So <laughs> You'll, you know, ultimately the sense is that if you build it here, chances are people will use it more. Also factoring in the practicalities of installing an EV charge point. Now, as I said about that power drain piece earlier on, I'm sort of mashing all the different charge points into one. And this this is the other challenge of the whole discussion. But these discussions, I tend to think of 7 to 50 kilowatt because that's mainly the ones that are getting deployed. I mean, there are... Uh, tons of rapid and very rapid ultra rapid charges being deployed um, but they tend to be in motorway and motorway and sort of highway type environments in terms of those slower or slow to fast charges or faster to ultra fast charges that ultimately the the whole piece to date is very much been like well there's capacity in the local substation here there's an idea that's going to be demand oh because it's a shopping center or it's or it is near a gym or it's near a cinema or it's or it's in a fairly busy area so if we build it there it's probably going to get used problem is that that doesn't really analyze the likely usage patterns doesn't really understand what people are likely going to be doing and how they're going to be charging and when they're going to be charging going forward if we're wanting to to understand and help people make that adoption, then we need to make sure the charges are in the right place. And the only way we can do that is by modelling. You secure your investment because people will see, or investors will see, well, actually, that is profitable. So I'll invest here. And therefore, more charges get installed, so there's more available, so more people use it. So you get this self, self-fulfilling self cycle. I'm really curious about what kind of data inputs have been used for, for this demand modelling so far, or are finding and procuring not only data sets at all, but just quality data sets for mm. uh, utilisation at scale, also part of the challenge in this expansion? Yeah, the, the data piece is difficult. And again, I can only really speak on on the sort of UK and Europe geography because I know different geographies have different data sets and the access mm. to it. So uh, it's a fairly Western data source, but uh, the Experian Mosaic data is effectively what gives you an idea of sort of consumer analysis in terms of postcode and and regional sort of neighbourhood level that then enables you to understand, okay, certain areas will have either a propensity to likely uptake EV or an actual uptake based on registration. So you've got this mosaic data that gives you like personal data, demographic data on top of that that gives you an idea of communities and what have you, and that tends to come from multiple sources. That's the sort of 
uh, demographic data, then you then start getting into the whole trip and people movement data, tons of sources for that, and that's where it can get quite pricey. So the, the Xperia on like mosaic data is one source that can be costly but not that expensive. The sort of trip data that can be derived from things like mobile phone data or uh, AMPR, so automatic number plate recognition, then gives you an idea of, okay, how busy is a certain road and the type of vehicles going down that road. So that data then gives you an idea of demand. And then the other point as well that's really interesting from a data perspective is using any form of GIS data, uh, so geographical information system, so the spatial data for things like uh, planned developments, uh, housing density, shopping centre, local workplaces, parking regulations, all of those things. And then you start to get a really good picture of an area and the likely adoption of EV and how they sort of play a part in terms of an area and how likely people are to adopt them. So those sources all together can give you a real good idea of people demand and power demand. And then once you have that, you can then start proposing locations and then working out what a utilization might look like in those locations. Yeah, wow. It sounds like there's a, a lot of moving parts in this, probably more than I had actually realized. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and the thing is, you've got to have a really robust tool first, first and foremost. But what's really fascinating with this whole space and the whole transport data space is, Historically, when we've looked at transport data, we've always looked at it from a sort of a reactive perspective. So, you know, you've got traffic moving around transport networks um, and you put in traffic lights or you, you monitor traffic flow and then work out where and how to change that flow to suit a specific traffic flow model or to satisfy a certain need in a certain community. Whereas with the move towards EV and this whole EV infrastructure adoption, we're in this first position where we can actually be more proactive in terms of trying to install infrastructure in places where we think people are going to need it and be ahead of the curve. And that's the exciting bit in my view. I think ultimately it's it, it moves away from this whole model of where you, you sort of build petrol stations and pretty much people will use them whereas EV is very much the case of well actually you know in the UK we need 300,000 if not more charges by 2030 just to meet some of our targets and if they're not built in the right place then we are going to meet our target but we're not going to actually deliver decarbonisation so yeah fascinating space the data driven piece is probably the bit where the greatest bang for your buck is probably going to occur really I think but also making sure that people can actually adopt it. Do you have a uh, like a real world demonstration of how utilization modeling can be or, or has been deployed? Yes. Yeah, so the project that we were doing, we were working with a private investment firm uh, to do a due diligence on their investment in a, uh, a charge point operator. Um, I'll, I'll shorten it to CPA for now just because it's a bit of a mouthful. And what that effectively involved us doing was where we looked at each of those locations and try to work out, okay, what sort of demand profile are you looking at? So some of the locations where the charge points, charge points were installed were at shopping centres, some of the locations where they were deployed or installed were at um, supermarkets, some of them where they were deployed and installed were at like gyms and hotels or just off the motorway. What that effectively meant was we then had to work out, okay, well, we need to work out likely demand, 
the realistic utilization using their existing data and the proposed utilization. As soon as we started getting into that, we discovered that the, the way in which utilization was being measured wasn't necessarily how we'd expect it. So they were measuring utilization as charge per day uh, in terms of the length of charge and the power drawn, but they weren't differentiating between a plugged-in session and an active session. If you use if you use plugged-in session versus active session, then you can have a car plugged in for 10 to 15 hours, but it topped out its charge by hour four in that period. So you've now got a car that's looking like it's using your charger, but actually it's not drawing any power. We, we proposed to the, to the CPO that their utilization model should um, actually be based on what we anticipate as the average potential maximum power draw from that charge point uh, per day. And that's built on a number of factors. And what we did to them, we said to them was actually, well, if you apply it to this use case here, which is like charging at a hotel, you'll see what I've just explained there is having a major impact on your on your income because ultimately you you do have cars that might actually get there fairly depleted in battery but sit there all night in this specific use case they hadn't put in an overcharge fee so there was nothing stopping people from charging all night but not charging because the car was already full and we said to them well actually if you use this more accurate sort of utilization calculation which bases power drawn by each charger on i don't know uh, the likely usage pattern, but also the realistic sort of like uh, draw based on that location, you know, then we then said to them, well, ultimately, can you encourage, in this specific use case, can you encourage people to charge during that period and then unplug their car or, or can you encourage them to sort of top up their car in that period and then unplug and then plug back in in the morning when they get up? so that they're not blocking the charger because there were some use cases where people were getting to that hotel quite late and actually wanting to charge overnight. So all of these things in that specific use case demonstrated that actually if you understand the likely utilization pattern of that location, if you use the right data, ultimately their model was telling them the wrong thing. It was telling them that site was being utilized really well. If you understand your data and if you understand your usage pattern and your demand, then you're going to get a better view in terms of how people are using it. Really interesting use case hotels and also shopping centres and and uh, and uh, any place where people are left leaving their car for a very long period of time. Yeah, that is super interesting because I hadn't even considered the difference between um, if somebody's actually plugged in and actively charging their vehicle versus someone who's just parked there and their car finished charging six hours ago. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it, it, it's, um, you can see it in the data. So it's not it's not like you can't identify it because it's as simple as the fact that you know, most of the data generated by charge point operators, can you can pick up those points. Ultimately, any car that's plugged in not charging isn't making you any money, basically. It's just blocking the charge point. It's another form of icing. I don't know if you've come across it in the industry, but the whole idea of icing is like internal combustion engine parked in a charging bay uh, is effectively icing that bay because ultimately no one who is an EV can charge it. But you have this sort of like EVing, which is effectively where you have an EV blocking it, but not charging, which is also a problem. I have come across, uh, I think like only two weeks ago, actually the term icing, and I really love it. I think it's such a fun, 
like te- not a great like experience, but a really fun kind of uh, mm. term for that behavior. So it's it's really quite cool. In terms of my my next questions, I really like these last ones. I try and always keep some like fun ones to last. This one is there's a whole bunch of innovation happening in EV charging and also just decarb in more general terms. What innovations are your favorite or that you're most excited about? I wish I could say like hover cars or stuff like that because that, you see, hover, you cars, hover <laughs> cars would be really good because that would get rid of your tyre wear and tear and it would also, in theory, get rid of your brake wear and tear, which would make vehicles fully emissions free, in theory. So, you know, uh, that, that, would be, that, that would be the solution. But realistically, the, the less sexy, less fun innovation is probably vehicle to grid. I always have to caveat this because it, it, it needs to be controlled vehicle to grid because um, the challenge with vehicle to grid, the exciting bit about vehicle to grid is, I mentioned that whole problem about flattening the curve in, in this whole uh, power draw. If every house in the UK had a, don't quote, don't quote me exactly on these figures, but if every household, and let's say you've got, uh, 18 million households in the UK had a 50 kilowatt car sitting on their drive. That is like, well, <laughs> many, 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 many kilowatt of battery capacity sitting, literally not being used between, you know, realistically between nine, you know, eight or nine pm and three am in the morning. The whole point of vehicle to grid is. Can you, as a power network, tap into all that power that's sitting there and actually use that to flatten the curve? So ultimately, if there's loads of power being drawn from the power networks, if you can collectively draw it from uh, a fraction of those vehicles to no longer need to turn on a, uh, a gas power station to, to meet the, the, the gap in, or coal power station to meet the gap in, in power generation, that will revolutionise, like... Uh, power power management but and I always say there's a but to this it only works if you've got really good systems that can manage it because I would be pretty peeved if I came down at 8am in the morning and found that uh, my car had been my battery had been fully depleted you know everyone around the street's really happy because they've had their kettles on they had the oven last night someone's watching <laughs> watching i don't know the crown or or the last of us and, and waited late into the night watching that and using all my power whereas <laughs> now i can't get to work because my car's literally sitting there depleted and i, I joke about that but actually there has been times where I've not fully set up my own charging setup in the evening and it's not charged in the morning. The systems need to be really robust if vehicles with charging. Robust enough that it doesn't do silly things to your battery. And the other point, I'm being really negative about this innovation. It is an exciting innovation, but I'm just saying that there are things, <laughs> some things with the innovation that need to crack. The other one is having the honest and open conversation that every time a battery is depleted, uh, and recharged again, uh, it uh, will reduce the life cycle of that. It will not reduce the life cycle. Well, it will reduce the life cycle of that overall battery. Uh, every drain will has a small incremental damage to the battery. Now, if you're increasing your drain on the battery from you know once a week to every night, you know that's like a threefold increase 
in the number of charge is a threefold increase in the number of charges uh, that will have an impact on your, your life cycle and your battery. So it's things like that that we need to have open conversations about. I'm not saying that that's not an issue, but it's something that people need to understand as well. That's good. I think it's a realistic take. Um, and the, the main takeaway as well is it's a lot of ovens and kettles. I suppose people need to feel that they're being incentivized. So in the UK, and actually they're getting quite big now globally, well, they're gradually becoming more global. There's an energy company called Octopus. Um, we, we've just joined them. Really interesting because they're using data. They're pretty much basing their entire power model around data. But they have a, they've just introduced a new sort of power package that's called Flex that allows you to discharge your battery and then recharge your battery. And the discharge of battery overnight is actually really quite, um, what's the word, profitable. Because ultimately, you could if you've got good solar power get, going into your house, you could potentially uh, generate a small profit from your solar uh, at night by exporting the power that you've got sat in your battery and in your car uh, back to the grid and then the next day you know rinse and repeat if it's a good sunny day fill it up again um the only problem is the uk is not the sunniest and you guys in australia have have, have all the sun so you know you should have solar everywhere how dare you not do that i uh, i apologize on behalf of australians <laughs> for uh the uh the unfair equitable distribution of uh <laughs> yes yes that is uh yeah that does go back to equitable uh, adoption but <laughs> uh my last kind of official question before i get to the one about how people can contact you is uh what's a question that you about this topic that you kind of wish people would ask you more often so again this is really uk focused but um uh, I've just come back from a conference where we've had this massive debate and it was fascinating where there was just like this whole two mm. two different views in the room between the CPOs and the EV drivers. But the question I'd ask, and it's almost like one to generate the discussion is, why, am I, why can I not pay at every charge point with my contactless card? Why do I need to have another app on my phone to pay for charging? <laughs> And why is it, uh, it's the second point, so it all links back to it. And why is it, if I've got an app on my phone, why on earth, why on earth is it set up in such a way that um, you auto-charge me for uh, a period of time, i.e. in the future, like taking 10, 15, 20 pounds, when I could then sit, have that set on my charge card for possibly weeks or months because I only use your card infrequently, I charge point infrequently. So why can I just not pay everyone with contactless? And also, if I'm paying by contactless, why am I being punished with a higher price versus uh, your preferential app-based charge? Yeah. Oh, maybe I should have asked that question earlier in the podcast and then just scrapped all my other questions and just. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. I just get it. Just I, yeah. I've been I've been on so many long journeys where about you know we've got our own driveway, we've got our own charger at home, and things like that. So you know we don't have to charge out and about, but at the same time when we go on longer journeys, you know, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred miles, which we do. We do do fairly regularly if we're going up north to sort of Edinburgh or the north of Scotland. Or in those instances, I have to like massively pre-plan to know which charge company 
I'm going to be using on the way. Therefore, which app do I need to have on my phone? And then how do I need to pre-top that up? Is there like a period of the setting up the app so that it works? All of these things. And I'm just like, well, if I just get somewhere now and plug in and then tap my contactless card or plug my card in and you know, put my card in and then my pin, it's a lot easier. Um, and it's really funny. I was showing someone... There was a, I was I was meeting with a with a, a an Egyptian delegate at this conference, and they were basically there on the journey towards uh, uh, running out EV uh, infrastructure. And they were like, "Oh, there's only three three charge companies. Why do you insist on?" Uh, they were like, "Why do you insist on people paying by contactless?" So I go open this app that we have in the UK called SapMap, which is really good for for, for for just having getting a lay of the land of all the charges, and then just scroll down. And kept scrolling on my phone and kept scrolling and kept scrolling and kept scrolling. And I'm probably there for like maybe 15, 20 seconds of just trying to like scroll down. And I'm like, oh, so that's all the charging companies. And each one of those has an app. So they were like, ah, okay. So uh, have you got all those on your home screen? I'm like, I just scroll right on my phone to all the very few their own screen. I'm like, yeah, there they are, laugh. like taking up 15 pages of my home screen. So yeah, so um, <laughs> It, yeah, it's, it, it, it drives me mad. With reason, though. I mean, it sounds like a very frustrating UX kind of uh, point of friction, which I'm sure if there's anyone listening who wants to uh, have a problem to solve, that sounds like a very good one. Yeah, and there's a thing called roaming so that like where you've got like one card for all charges and there's a lot of companies getting into that space as well. So there, there is a solution to it, um, but then you still have to have another card because you have to subscribe to that roaming company so yeah and then they don't have the same rates so i just 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 you know if i go to a petrol station i don't have to have like i don't have to have a shell payment card or an so payment card or a mgf payment card i just pay with my contactless card and that, that's and people that like, oh, don't compare it to fuel i'm like yeah but that's one use case where you should compare it to fuel it's like people want to pay in the easiest way that's not something difficult to ask <laughs> I'm sorry that I've asked you that question now, actually. That you're <laughs> kidding. Real stressed for the first thing in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's fine. It's fine. I've got a coffee. It's all right. Okay. And the kids, are, the kids are away today, so that's all good as well. So I love them. I love them. <laughs> it's a win all around. Yes. So my, uh, my last question is um, how can people connect with you or where can they go to learn more? By all means, you can drop me a mail. So... Um, my uh, email address, and I think you—I'm guessing you pop it in the in the spiel of the of the podcast, whatever you. But it's uh, David at WSP um, and then to find out more about uh, WSP, you can just bang in uh, WSP uh, com, which would then take you to whichever region you you're in, uh, to give you a bit of an idea of, of, of the company that we're working. For, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, so again, it's David Trousdale, and you'll find my. You, you should pretty much be able to work it out. But um, I'm a transport decab technical director within WSP. Or if you're a charge point operator and you want to have a rant to me about why it's hard, then by all <laughs> means do it. <laughs> Excellent. Good. Wide variety of audiences with their problems in there that can contact you about different things. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, David, for, for taking your time out and, and being on the podcast today. It was a super interesting conversation and nice to get a little bit of a, uh, a UK perspective as well. No, thank you. No, thank you for your time. And uh, as I say, um, hopefully 
uh, looking for advancements in the Australian market going forward as well. If you'd like to learn more about any of the guests that we have on the podcast, more about Bite Size, or more about Compass IoT, the company that produces this podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.compassiot.com.au. Until next time.